Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Jay, and I'm one of the pastors here. And um, in this part of worship, we just want to proclaim God's word together. So would you join me in, in prayer? As, and if you want to, you can open your Bibles up to Acts chapter 17. And let's pray together. Father, we just acknowledge you as we sit outside here and listening to the wind blowing through the trees, and we're reminded that just as surely as that the wind is with us, though we can't see it, you are with us. As we listen and we see one another's faces and when we look at the beauty around us and we hear the sounds of, of children laughing and, and playing, God, let us be reminded that you are the God of all things. And you created all things. And we are reminded, God, that we are yours, that in you we live and move and have our being, whether we are worshiping you or playing, whether we are working, whatever we do, eating or drinking, we do all for the glory of you. And so we submit this time to you, Lord, and pray that you would meet us here, Holy Spirit, and do the work that only you can do. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage in Acts 17, it's actually really fitting to be here and to be in a place where um, we're probably interrupting uh, people's camping weekend and, and playing and all these different things. And we're just this random group of people here and just like broadcasting this out here. It, it makes sense because this passage in Acts 17 is one of the times where Paul, it's one of the, one of the most famous um, sermons as Paul deals with and, and approaches um, a, a culture that is very much like ours. This is a culture that he's, we're going to see him most of the time in Acts that we've seen so far. He's been going into synagogues and reasoning with the Jews. And we can certainly understand that to an extent. But today we see him go into Athens to what is the cultural center of the world. It is where all the philosophies of the day, the best philosophies and the, the greatest thinkers of the day are, are gathered together. And we are in a culture today that has seemingly a seemingly endless array of philosophies. There is no shortage to the philosophies that one can have. We have, we have major philosophies that we kind of maybe adhere to a little bit, but then all of us kind of have our own variations of everything. And in our culture, we're very good at taking bits and pieces from all kinds of other cultures and belief systems and kind of forming them together to make our own personal religions, our own personal philosophies. And the question that we ask so often is, can the gospel hold up in a world that has so many different philosophies? Why would we proclaim that the gospel, this ancient message that God created us, that we rebelled, that he sent his son to die for us, to redeem us, and that he is renewing us till one day we are with him for all eternity in glory? How can that stand up? How can we make that claim? And it can feel outdated and ancient, but the reality is there's nothing new under the sun. And this is exactly the situation that we see Paul walk into the philosophical center of the world and preach the gospel. 
In verse 16 in Acts, in, the, in chapter 17, it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. So the, to, to kind of catch you up, we, we've been in Acts, and we saw that, that Paul and, and Timothy and Silas were in Thessalonica, and then they were with the Bereans, and then they send Paul on ahead, and, and Timothy and Silas um, stay behind. And so Paul goes on to Athens, and he's just kind of hanging out. Like, I picture him just kind of like sitting at a bus stop, just waiting for Timothy and Silas to show up so they can continue on. But he's not just sitting and waiting, twiddling his thumbs. His eyes are very open. And what he sees is a city full of idols. And like I said, Athens was the, the center of culture and philosophy. So Rome at this time is the center of power. But the Romans loved the Greeks. The Romans, like, they loved them so much that they stole all their gods and just kind of renamed them in their culture. Like, they just loved, they were fascinated with the culture, with the Greek culture. And so Athens remained very much the, the cultural and philosophical center of the world. And what Paul is doing is he's sitting there, he looks around, and there are literally thousands of idols and statues to all kinds of, like, idols constructed to all kinds of philosophies and ideas. And I could go down a road of saying how we, we see that around us, like we see idols constructed to the gods that, that, that we worship, whether it is a 70,000-seat football stadium or whether it, is, um, whether it is our giant houses or whatever the case is, we build temples to all the things that we worship. And Athens is no different. So Paul looks around and he sees it. And, and, and just by a side note, he thinks he's waiting. He's there to wait for Timothy and Silas, but God has other plans. So just a, a quick little side note for you that, that while you think you are waiting, while you think you are treading water, while you think you are waiting for the next big thing to happen, know that God is working right now. And Paul is waiting, and yet in the midst of it, one of the greatest interactions that we see in Acts happens. And so Paul can't help himself. He, he looks around, he sees all of these idols, he sees all these statues, and he can't contain himself. Like he has to say something, because he, I think he's, he's filled with compassion uh, uh, for the people of saying, like, you're seeking after all these things. Like, I see you wanting to find out who this God is, or, or what you can worship, and, and I know who he is. And so he is, the gospel just kind of pours out of him, and he goes into the synagogue. And what does he preach? Big surprise, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He doesn't preach a philosophy. He preaches the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And their response is that they are curious. If you look at verse 18, it says, Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Um, it, you don't have to know Greek to know that babbler is not a com compliment. Okay. Like they are, they're basically mocking him as like, just like some unoriginal, like what is this babbler saying about all this? He says, he, he seems to be pre, a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, Maybe, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. 
Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul obliges. Now it's important to know that they aren't really all that interested in the deity of Jesus. They just find Paul curious. They find him entertaining. They, they don't know. They, they feel like it's a win-win. Either he'll say something interesting that we might want to take into our own philosophies. Maybe best case scenario, we'll build an idol to whatever he's saying. Or at the very least, it's all foolishness and we can just mock him and make fun of him and feel superior to him. What I love, though, is Paul doesn't care. He has the opportunity to preach the gospel, and he does. And what he does serves as an incredible example that's been followed for thousands of years. There's a great mathematician back in the the 1600s, which is before all of our times, named Blaise Pascal. And Pascal um, ended up coming to Christ. He had this incredible conversion experience and turned most of his brilliance and and thinking towards um, philosophy and, and towards religion. And the big thing, one of the big things that Pascal um, contributed was that he said the problem with Christianity in a time when people were reasoning and rationalizing and everything, they're saying, well, this whole story about Jesus doesn't make rational sense. It's not logical. And during that time, what Pascal said is that it's not reason that's the problem. The problem isn't that people look at it and they say, like, well, this, this is just a fairy tale. This is ridiculous. It's not logical or rational. He said the problem isn't reason. The problem is that people don't want it to be true. They're afraid of what it will mean if this is true. His, his belief and his understanding after studying people and, and listening to them in the great philosophies is people believe what they want to believe. Like, we know this in practice, right? Like, um, let me give an example that, I don't know if you remember, a um, long, long, long time ago, we went through a pandemic. There was this thing and this virus, and it may, you may have been isolated from it, but it turns out that people didn't agree on how to deal with it. Like, this is all very shocking stuff to me. Like, you'd figure we're all so smart and reasonable and and brilliant people that we just got together, we could look at the problem and say, well, obviously, this is the most rational way to deal with this, and so let's just fix this problem and address it. Turns out that didn't work. Now, I don't know if you had the experience. Think about it for a second. Did you have the experience? Imagine imagine your view on masks. Just, Just for a second. Just go back with me. It feels so good, right? Oh. This feels so good. I'd forgotten about all this stuff, and now we're just going to bring it all up again. Okay, so think about masks. Think about what your view on masks was. Are they helpful? Are they not? Should we wear them? Should we not? All these different things. Now, my guess is that whatever your view is, you could point to a dozen different articles and studies that would prove your point, correct? And did you ever have the experience of reading something and thinking, well, this, this proves my point, and you sent it to someone who disagreed with you? Anybody have that experience? Okay. Did that work for anyone? No, of course not. All right. It didn't work, right? Why didn't it work? Because whatever our belief system was, whatever we had kind of figured out is this is the way to handle this. This is what makes sense. This is what's rational. This is what's logical. Every piece of information we got was filtered through that. And what determined 
whether we believed or did not believe a different piece of evidence was completely dictated by what we already believed about that thing, what we wanted to be true. If we wanted to believe that I can be in control and that as long as I do all the right things, then I can't get infected, then we would believe that and all the evidence that goes to that. If we wanted to believe that like I, I'm immune from it and everybody else, like I don't, I'm not worried about that, then, then we would believe that. If we believe this is effective, then everything would feed into that. The bottom line is we believe what we want to believe. And Pascal said, that's the problem. That we spend so much time in Christianity talking about um, all these reasons, but the reasons don't matter if you don't want them to be true. And so what Pascal said is pretty simply, he just said that what we need to do is first demonstrate that Christianity could be true. He's like, stop trying to convince people of Christianity right off the bat. First, just express that it could be true, that it's one of the things that could be possible, that it's not a ridiculous thing, that it could be true. And then he said, convince people that they want it to be true. And then he said, show them that it is true. So Pascal wasn't saying that it's, it's not true. He's saying you have to start with first showing that it could be true, then that you want it to be true, then that it is true. And that is, I think he gets that largely from this text in Acts 17, because we're going to see Paul do the same thing. He first points out the reasonableness of Christianity and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In verse 22, it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of, of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So some at the time, two of the major philosophies at the time, one, one was they, they believed that everything was random. And nothing really mattered, so just pursue pleasure. Like this, It's just all for nothing anyway, so just do whatever feels good and makes you happy. Does that sound like it makes sense in today's culture? But others believed in a form of fate. They would have said something like, the universe knows. To put stuff out into the universe and see what comes back to you because whatever happens is, is fate. We, we don't have any determination in that. And so they would kind of live these detached lives and just kind of throw things out into the universe and see what would come back to them. And what is Paul doing here? What's interesting is though they are mocking him, Paul is not mocking in return. Paul doesn't say like, how ridiculous of you to think you just like randomly throw something out into the sky and you think it's going to come back to you? You think that all of this is for nothing? You think that all of this around you just kind of happened by accident? He doesn't mock them at all. What he does is he empathizes with them and he gets to and meets them where they are. And he says, look, I can see that you're very religious. Look at all these idols. Look at the things that you are seeking for. I can, I can see and I've observed them. I've observed the objects that you worship. I, I've, I've watched what you are doing and how you are pursuing them. And then he says, 
What he's doing is finding common ground. And he's laying a foundation to say, you think it's weird, like you're mocking me for talking about Jesus, and you think that's weird, but look, we're kind of on the same page here. We're all looking for whatever that is that's out there beyond us. It's actually not any more outlandish than these statues that you guys have been building. And we see that today. Every person tries to make sense of the world, and we all create our own philosophy, and we choose an object of worship. Every single human being has a philosophy and has an object of worship, whatever that is. And we know that all those things that we have made up ourselves, they leave us empty. And what Paul says is even, even your own poets point this out. Even your own poets say this. He, he's not quoting scripture or the Old Testament. It's he's quoting their own poets to point out the common ground that they have. So I'm going to do the same thing. There's the, the late novelist David Foster Wallace said this one time. He's not a Christian. He was not a Christian. He said the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship. He's talking about just worship. And he's saying like the, the compelling reason for choosing like um, a God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, then you will never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. He says, worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is... They're unconscious. They are default settings. Even the one who does not believe that God exists says we are wired to worship. And we will create our object of worship if we do not find the true one to worship. And so even an, a, a, like a non-believer like David Foster Wallace says, look, religion isn't the craziest idea. We all create something to worship. And so Paul meets them where they are. He says, I can tell you're religious. You believe there's something beyond you. And maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, yeah, I've, I've done that with my philosophies and I've, I've done that with my pursuits and they have left me empty. Well, what Paul is saying, look, we know this. You're not a fool for doing that. That's what you're actually wired to do. But he has really good news. And that's the second thing that he does, is he then makes it desirable. Let me tell you something. The gospel is good news. It is such a trite statement. We've heard a million times that not a single one of you took that note down. Do you know why I know you didn't take that note down? It's because we you know the gospel literally means good news. And so we know that. But do we think about what that actually means? It's good news. But we don't always make it look like good news, do we? If you took a survey, we've talked about this before, if you took a survey of non-Christians and you asked them, describe Christians. What are the most defining character traits of Christians? 
Just think in your head, what do you think they would say? I've asked that before, and typically I get answers like judgmental, grumpy, no fun. You know what I don't get? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I get a list of philosophies and moralities that they're against or, or for. And then as we're doing that, that's our platform. As we're connecting with people over that, then we say, hey, and you should come be a part of this too. Please come join my grumpy no fun club. It's awesome. We can judge everybody else for not being as grumpy and lacking as much fun as us. It feels a little bit like when people, before Lauren and I had children, when they would try to tell us how great it was to have children. They'd be like, oh, it's awesome. You get to clean up someone else's waste. And you won't sleep again. And you're going to be stressed out constantly. You'll never, you'll never have any time for any of your hobbies ever again. And you'll worry constantly for the rest of your life. Well, that sounds great. Like, how do I sign up for that? But what changes? I mean, the reality is those are, those are parts, of, that's par- parts of parenting. But there's something that changes with the whole parenting thing, at least it did for me. And everything changed the first time I held my son. Why? Because the key to understanding the beauty of parenting is not the what of parenting, but the who of my child. The key to understanding faith and Christianity is not the what of the tenets of beliefs, but the who of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is masterfully going to do. The, the what, hear me, hear me say this very clearly, the what of the gospel is only good news because the who is Jesus. No Jesus, no gospel, no good news. And we are filled with people who are trying to get the kingdom of God without the king. To have all the benefits and the joy of the gospel without the Savior. And it centers around this idea of how do we see it? Do we really see this as good news? Let me give you an example of how the who is the key to this. One practical help we try to give people when you read the Bible is that we talk about head, heart, hands. Okay? I don't even know if I pointed to the right things at the right time, but whatever. Head, heart, hands. Head, like what do you, what do you need to know? Heart, what, do I, what stirs my affections? What do I love? And then hands, what, do I, what am I supposed to do? And we typically, from a Baptist tradition, are very good at the head and the hands. Like we're very big on like we got to understand what it says and then do what it says. And we tend to kind of gloss over, but why is it good news? And sometimes we ask that question, it's really hard to know the answer to that. Let me give you an example. In the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says such awesome things as like someone strikes you on your cheek, turn and, and expose the other cheek. He says, if people steal from you, like don't ask for it back. If they demand something from you, give them even more than they asked for. If they treat you as an enemy and persecute you, then pray for them and love them. I'm so thankful for keyless remotes, aren't you? So great. 
And so when you think about that Sermon on the Mount, those are some of the hardest statements we have in Scripture. How can we possibly say it's good news? Like think of that whole turn the other cheek, do not repay evil for evil. That whole idea, our first response always when we hear that about like turn the other cheek is first to qualify it. To say what it doesn't mean. Well, it doesn't mean I'm supposed to be a doormat. It doesn't mean we're supposed to accept injustice toward ourselves. And what are we doing in that point? Like what we are doing is taking the words of Jesus and we are making them about a what and not a who. And so we take that what and we immediately start to qualify it and fit it into our philosophy, into our understanding to make it make sense and to figure out a way in which we can obey it. But what we are actually obeying then is our own philosophy, our own idol and not Jesus. And it's not good news. And what we typically try to do is like, okay, like if somebody treats you poorly, like turn the other cheek, like just suck it up, grit your teeth and just deal with it. Because like, that's what Jesus did. And sometimes I'd even be guilted with like, well, if Jesus can go to the cross, then you can surely handle this. Like ridiculous things like that. And we kind of manipulate that and we try to like make ourselves obey it, but we don't see how it's good news. But the key to understanding how accepting injustice for myself and turning the other cheek, the key to understanding how that is good news is not some kind of new age philosophy or something new that I can tell you. It's Jesus. And here's why. Because the call is not to accept injustice in that moment, but to entrust justice to Jesus. That's what turning the other cheek is about. That's what loving your enemies is about. That's what like not repaying evil for evil is about. It's not saying that evil doesn't matter. It's not saying that injustice doesn't exist. It's not saying that it doesn't grieve the heart of God. It's not saying that we should just get over it and deal with it and just kind of move on because, you know, there's more important things in life. It's saying justice is incredibly important, but there is one who gives justice. And all I am doing is saying I can't do that. That's not mine to exact. And so I just give that over to Jesus. Imagine if we lived in a world where our justice system was perfect. Spoiler, it's not. Great injustices happen all the time. But imagine if you were wronged and you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that the one who is going to hear that case, the one that would hear your grievance, the one who would bring justice, knew fully what had happened without any bias, without any like misunderstanding, but knew completely and fully. And on top of that was completely good and just and not only knew exactly the right way to make it right, but had all the power to be able to do it. That sounds pretty good, right? Like if that was our justice system, we would all be like, well, I don't worry about it. Someone stole something from my house. Like I don't worry about it because I know justice is going to happen. The reason we worry about all those things and stress about all those things is because injustice happens all the time. But if you know that one is coming who will make all things right, then Jesus is saying in that light, if you trust me to make all things right, if you trust me for justice, then when you are struck on the cheek, then turn the other cheek. Because you are trusting me to be your defender. You're trusting me to make all things right. 
The problem is not a what, it is a who. And that is what Paul is saying to them. He's saying, you have all these philosophies. Notice what he says, all these idols. I notice you're religious. I notice all these idols, all these statues you built. But he said, I noticed one in particular, and it was inscribed with, to an unknown God. What he's saying in that moment is you are chasing all of these what's, these new thoughts, these new ideas, these new like, ways of dealing with the world and fitting it into the, your philosophy in your box. <clears throat> he said, but your problem is not all of those what's. The problem is who. And you have this one inscription that shows that to an unknown God. And he said, you don't know him, but I do. Let me introduce you. He says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He says he's not contained in your temples or in your statues. He's not built by your human hands. He's not invented in the mind of man or formed in the heart of man nor served by the hands of men. He is God, the creator of the universe, and he is good. And this is incredible news that you can know him. The question is who, not what. And this is the bell that we have been ringing for a long time now. And we're going to ring it over and over again. And I will until I die that Christianity is about a who and not a what. It is not a philosophy or a moral code or a way of life or a set of knowledge. It is a person. We always want to turn it into a what. And here's why. If we're honest with ourselves, the reason why we so quickly want to turn things into a what is because it is easier to control and to measure and to manipulate. As long as it's about a what, I can justify all kinds of things. Again, not to use the parenting example, but if I ask my kids, like, hey, have you been good today? Their answer is going to immediately go to their set of what's they have done or what they have not done, but they're not going to look at the pleasure that they have given us, or if they have pleased us, or if if there has been joy in our house. They'll never look at that, and neither will we, because we talk about this all the time, but when I, I ask people, how is your relationship with God going? How is your faith? You immediately, immediately go to how often you've been reading the Bible or not reading the Bible, how often you've been going to church, apologizing to me profusely for it's been so long since I've been to church. I don't care. I mean, I care a little bit, because I miss you. But my concern is that not being in church and not being in the fellowship of believers means you're not communing with Jesus in this way that he calls us to, and so you're missing out on communing with him. Not that our attendance numbers look bad. Not that we can't get into volunteers for our programs, but you're missing this together with him. The way is following him. The knowledge that we attain is knowing him. The moral code is obeying him. The key is communion with him. Not some new angle or some new teaching or some great sermon like twisting the scripture in just such a way that you're like, I never never thought of that before. I get it that those things happen, but those are not the things that actually stir us. It's him. And I know people are going to tell me I am a broken record, and that's okay. 
But tell me right now, look at the landscape of the church and tell me what fracturing of the church isn't explained by the exchange of the who for the what. The who we follow versus the what we follow. And we've been left worshiping a set of beliefs, a set of doctrinal statements, an ideology, an identity, worshiping a culture, worshiping a cause. And we have to take responsibility as the church for this. Creating a Christian philosophy of life and Bible teachings and everything is centered and filtered through that philosophy. And we get really combative when those philosophies are pushed against, even if they're pushed against by the very words of Jesus. And we end up looking nothing like Jesus. And I think that is the call to the church. We should look in such a way that when people describe us, they say like they're, they're weird maybe. They have weird beliefs. I don't understand all this stuff. But I got to say, I don't know more joyful people than those who follow Jesus. I don't know more loving people than those who follow Jesus. I don't know kinder people than those who follow Jesus. Like take any movement in the church and always the downfall is exchanging the who for the what. The movement of theology, and theology becomes important, it becomes the focus, and starts out as a desire to know God, but it very quickly gets transferred to knowledge about God, and all of a sudden the knowledge is what we worship. Or the church growth movement, where we started with a desire of bringing people in and saying, hey, everybody is welcome, and so we try to make everything relatable. And as we bring people in, we start over time, we got really good at orchestrating an event that made people feel welcome and kind of stirred their emotions. And so pretty soon we got so good at it. We got so good with our music, so good with our preaching, so good with, with the lighting and, and all that stuff that we didn't even need the Spirit. People come in, they get some, some helps for their life. They feel good. They see some people, some things happening, and it feels good. And all of a sudden that becomes the thing. Or we gave people ways to improve their marriage or their business or their communities. In other words, we gave them a strong philosophy, but not a person. And over the years, we have shrunk the mystery, shrunk the calling, shrunk the gospel. And then we wonder why people leave the faith. Because we sold them a philosophy, not a person. Gods made of our own hands that look like the God of the Bible, but are not. And then someone comes along and, and pokes holes in our statues, and they come crumbling down. Listen, if you have ears to hear, the answer is not a new teaching. It is not a new angle. The answer is a person. And he has made himself known to you today. And that's what Paul says. The answer to what you're looking for is a person. And he says in verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, here's more good news for them, he is actually not far from each one of us. 
For in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. He's saying, this is who he is. You know, even your own poets have said we're his offspring. Obviously, we came from something. Look around the world. He created it. You didn't create him. He created you. He is the source of life. What good thing do you have in your life? It came from him. And he says, this God that I am talking to you about had hidden himself in ways but now has made himself known to you. In verse 30, he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So what Paul is doing is he's saying, look, I know what you're seeking. We've been seeking the same thing too. But let me tell you, you are not looking for a what. You are looking for a who. And this is who he is. He is God. He is powerful. He is good. You can know him. If you could know the God who created all this, would you not want to? Is that not good news that rather than just tossing something out into the universe, you can actually speak to the one who created you and formed you? Like, isn't that better? Wouldn't you want that to be true? And he gets some of the people there to say like, yeah, I actually, that's better. I want that. Like, please tell me that's true. And Paul offers one piece of evidence. Outside of creation, he offers one piece of evidence for how he could prove it and know that it's true, and it's the resurrection. He's saying the reason we know that this is who God is is because he became flesh and walked among us. He lived among us. He performed miracles, and then he died, and then he walked out of the grave. I've mentioned before about my crisis of faith, that in my mid-20s, I almost, like, I felt like I was lost. I, my whole life, I thought, like, I, once I came to Christ when I was younger, I thought, I'm going into ministry, that's what I want to do. And then in my 20s, at the peak of my time in ministry, I lost my faith. I just, it was gone. It all of a sudden didn't make sense to me. And I was wrestling with so many different questions and challenges to the faith. But even though I had let go, God hadn't let go of me. And he held on to me. And he gently, at one point, I remember one day, just turned my attention to Jesus. And stopped getting me to ask all these questions about the what's and all these different things and these challenges and these philosophies and all this stuff. And come back to the who. And the central question of, did Jesus raise from the dead? If the answer is yes, then I trust him. I trust him when I go through suffering. I trust him when I don't understand what's going on around me. I trust him when I see people hurting. I trust him when something doesn't make sense to me. Because by the way, what planet do we live on that we think everything in the cosmic universe should make sense in my little brain? When things don't make sense, when I don't understand, when, I, when I'm struggling or whatever, I trust him. I trust who he says he is and what he says about me. And Paul says, this man lived and died and rose from the grave. That's who he is. The who created you, loved you, and gave himself up for you. He conquered sin and death. And at the judgment day, all that's going to matter 
is does he know you? And he calls for the response. And this is how some of them responded. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. And as we've said, all through Acts, some will mock, others will believe. And they mocked because they wanted new knowledge. They wanted new philosophies to add to their collection, to feel educated, to feel informed. They wanted some of that. And as long as it stayed a philosophy, as long as it stayed a teaching, as long as Paul was doing that, that's fine because they could take it and they could manipulate it and they could form it to whatever they already wanted to believe. But as, long, but as soon as it became a person, now you have to respond to him. And so this morning, you are not called to respond to a set of ideologies or beliefs. You are called to respond to Jesus Christ. And we have several people who are going to get baptized this morning. And what they are doing, and what is very important to me that happens in our church, is that they are not getting baptized because they are convinced that this way of doing baptism is intellectually accurate and the best way of doing it. What they are getting, the reason they are getting baptized is because they are following Jesus. Because they are responding to him and his example in baptism. The reality is we all have to deal with this fact that we don't naturally want him to be true because I can't control him. I can't manipulate him. I can't dictate to him. I submit to him. And we don't like to give up control ever. We always think we're better off when we're in control. How many of you secretly thought over the last couple of years, if someone just let me in the room and let me kind of sort things out, I could figure this out. It's all right. I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but we all think it. But the reality is we know ultimately that's not true. If you're flying in an airplane and it runs into turbulence, do you want to be in control? I mean, maybe Doug. I don't know where Doug is, but there very few of you want to be in control when the plane is in turbulence and is struggling. Right? Like if you're hemorrhaging, if your brain is hemorrhaging and you get thrown on the table, how many of you want to be in control in that moment? See, what the, the issue is, we understand we shouldn't be in control, but we still fear giving up control. But giving up control is only terrifying if you don't know who you are giving up control to. Giving up control of your life and abandoning and dying to yourself and saying, I am no longer my own. I do not exist for me. That is only terrifying if you don't trust the one that you are giving yourself up to. I'm here to tell you this morning that the one that you're called to give yourself up to is Jesus Christ. It's not me. It's not faith church. It's not some political camp or theological camp in our country, it is Jesus Christ submitting to him and then to one to another as his, as his body. So that's the question for you this morning. Whatever you've been chasing, whatever what's you have been chasing, the question this morning is, 
Is God turning you from all the what's, all the questions in your mind, all the stuff that you struggle with, all the why me or why not me or what is going on? And is he turning you to a who? Because you don't have to fully understand the road that you're on right now. You just have to trust the one who is leading you on it. And if you feel led to do that this morning, maybe baptism is that step for you. And I just want you to know that when we go down there here in a few minutes, and there are people who have planned to get baptized this morning, but maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, I need to follow him in that. If that's the case, I want you to find me or Kevin. I don't know where Kevin is because other ones are getting in the, the water. Um, but find me. Um, there's Kevin. Um, so find me or Kevin and talk to us. And let me tell you something. We're not going to give you some giant theological quiz. We're not going to say, like, so what does Ephesians 2, 4 say? And then, like, sit there and pop quiz you or whatever. Here's what we're going to ask you. Do you want to follow Jesus? Do you know why you're wanting to get baptized? That's it. And if you are following Jesus, then we'll baptize you this morning. We are not the gatekeepers. He is. So I just want to encourage you, turn to the who. If you have exchanged the who for a what, take it back. Abandon all the what's and grab hold of the who because he has held on to you. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you and God, we are so grateful for how you have revealed yourself to us that we would never have come up with this in a million years in our own minds, in our own hearts, but you revealed yourself to us through thousands of years of speaking to us. And so what a gift it is that we have your word, that we have the Bible. We can see how you have interacted with us, how you have spoken to us, what you have said to us. But then by sending Jesus and making your word three-dimensional, and all of a sudden in flesh, we can see what it means that you love us what it means that we are your people, what it means that we are inheritance of your grace, what it means that we are called to live for you, what it means that you have empowered us to live holy lives. And for a people that are wandering and aimless and searching for so many different things to know who it is who is calling us and who is leading us. What incredible news that is. That we are created, and though we have sinned, we are forgiven, we are redeemed, we are renewed, and we will join you in glory. In Jesus' name, amen.